Welcome to episode 127 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today, we get to speak once again with Jeff Reinick, who served in the FBI for 30 years. During his career, he primarily investigated cases of missing and murdered children. And in this episode, part two, Jeff continues his review of how he obtained a confession from serial killer Carrie Stainer, who was responsible for the brutal slayings of two women and two teenage girls, known as the Yosemite Park Murders. Jeff also discusses the mental toll working child predator and murder cases had on him and how his family helped him cope with case-related PTSD and attempted suicide. Jeff Reinick is the author of In the Name of the Children, an FBI agent's relentless pursuit of the nation's worst predators. His personal account of child predator and murder investigations with each chapter dedicated to the victims, including a chapter for his wife and sons. I want to thank all of you who reached out to me this week to let me know how much this episode meant to you and how brave you thought Jeff Reinick was to share his story with us. As I said last week, this interview was definitely one of my most challenging. I wanted to make sure that I asked the right questions and said the right things. I want to give you a warning right up front that part two is very disturbing. I usually don't include such graphic details, but I kept it all in this time because I really wanted you to understand what Jeff saw, what Jeff experienced, the violent images that are in his head based on the experiences he encountered during his career. Before we get to the interview, I have just a few things to say. The first thing is, Welcome to all of my new listeners who were introduced to the show by Esther Ludlow of Once Upon a Crime podcast. Once Upon a Crime is a top-rated true crime podcast where Esther dives into some of the most fascinating true crime cases told one chapter at a time. I was honored that she interviewed me on her show in a special next chapter segment where we talked about my career as an FBI agent, author, and podcaster. I hope my regular listeners will check out Once Upon a Crime the same way that Esther's audience has taken the time to check out FBI Retired Case File Review. And now that you're here, I want to invite you to join my reader team. Once a month, I send out a digest of podcast episodes, so you have an easy access to look at the show notes for each episode and view the photos and newspaper articles. I share with you my crime fiction recommendations, and I update you on the FBI and books, TV, and movies, and of course, my own author journey. If you're not yet a member of my reader team, all you need to do is go to my website, jerrywilliams.com, and that's J-E-R-R-I williams.com, and sign up when you see the pop-up. When you join my reader team, 
you'll have access to my free FBI reading resource, books about the FBI written by the FBI agents who have been on this podcast. Currently, there are more than 40 books, crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs. Of course, Jeff's book, In the Name of the Children, is on the reading resource, as well as my books, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers, available at Amazon.com as ebooks and trade paperbacks and audiobook. And one last thing, please subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you. Now here's the show. Let me remind you where we were when we left off at the end of part one. Jeff Reinick was sitting with Carrie Stainer in the polygraph room at the Sacramento Division, waiting to find out if Carrie, who had already confessed to the killing of naturalist Joey Armstrong, was going to confess to murdering Carol's son, Julie's son, and Selvina Peloso. Now, bear in mind that we still don't know he's the guy. He's claiming he's the guy, but there's two other guys locked up. I did ask him a couple questions at the outset that I was hoping would clear up whether he was or he wasn't the guy. One of the questions I asked him was, did you write a letter? And he said, yes. And I said, what was on that letter? And he gave me verbatim what was on the letter. We had fun with this one. And as soon as he said that, you know, I believed that he was the guy. The one thing I'd like your listeners to understand is there's a lot of guys that go around who are associated with accomplishments like this. And I've been to them. I've been to the presentations and they stand up there and they portray themselves as being in total control, having a total understanding of what needs to be done, logically thinking through their thoughts of what needs to happen next. You know, for me, it's not like that. For me, I was scared to death. I didn't want to miss anything. What was in my mind were all these friends of mine that were up in Yosemite doing crime scenes, working, and here I was trying to do something that might help them and might bring them home, and if I didn't do it right, it would affect them. The greatest compliment I get other than from the victim's families is when other agents tell me how much it meant to them that I was able to get the confession because of what they had experienced or seen or were in the middle of. And the fact that it was going to end, it was going to be over. This was it. It was it was done. It had been going on for seven months, and it was going to end. So I don't want people to think that, oh, I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew exactly what I was going to say. I was doing the best I could, but I was also scared. I didn't want to mess up. Wow, thank you for telling us that, because I, I think that's something people don't understand. You're thinking to yourself, if I mess this up, do anything that could make this confession be thrown out, and he is the one who did it, and the evidence there is there to prove it, but because of something you did during that confession, the confession is thrown out. You're right. You're exactly right. Is and, and one of the things that happened during the confession is as he was talking about the items of evidence that he was handling and exposed to, I asked him if he would take us to where this evidence is located and he would help us retrieve it. And he agreed to do that. And the day after the confession, 
we went to Joey Armstrong's cabin and he demonstrated how what he had done on me. And then we spent the rest of the day with him taking us to locations where there was evidence and recovering the actual evidence he used in the crime. So by the time it was over, everything was a daisy chain from the confession. But at least if, if I had messed up or done something wrong, there'd still be an opportunity to try and save it. That makes sense. Absolutely. When I see so many guys on TV and when you watch all the shows, everybody, they know exactly. I, I mean, I knew what I was doing and I knew what I had to accomplish. And I, I was thinking I, I need to get the elements of the crime and I want to understand what he did. But there's not that comfort level or, you know, you're, you're pretty nervous and worried and wanting not to miss anything. And then at the same time, worried you're going to say something that's going to shut them down. One of the things that happened after the interview was over was when I left the interview room, I'm not going to say who, but there was a person, an administrative person that intercepted me coming out of the room, and he looked at me like I was a monster because I knew what the monster would do. And that has always stayed with me. It's always bothered me that he would think because I knew that I was that person. And in reality... As an FBI agent, it's our job to get into the dirt, to crawl in the sewer, in the gutter, because you have to see what these people do to know how to get them. You know, have you ever seen the movie Mississippi Burning? Yes. I That is my favorite FBI movie. And, you know, there's a, a scene there where uh, Ernie Hudson is flying away in the airplane and Gene Hackman is telling Willem Dafoe all this thing. And Willem Dafoe says, I guess it doesn't matter to you that this is all coerced and this is whatever. And, and Gene Hackman goes through this explanation of saying, you know, you've got to get down in the gutter with these people if you're going to get them. And that's, you know, that's what we have to do. That's what the FBI does so well. And we're really good at doing that without losing ourselves. Yeah, and I guess I, I, I just want to make sure that you explain what you mean by that. And that's by showing compassion are making them, making the subject, no matter how bad they are, making them think that, hey, I understand, you know, exactly. I, I, I know what you're going through. This wasn't your fault. Exactly. And, and for me, it's, it's not an interview tactic. It's what you, when I interviewed a kid one time and what, what I did with him was I, I said to him, you know, in the lead up to talking about the crime, not trying to get to know him, I said, if you could have anything in the world, what would you want? And his answer was, I would want someone to love me, and I would want to have someone to love. How does that not affect you? And so that told me that this kid that had committed a murder, that he had other things going in his life. And and in my opinion, you know, he might have had some mental illness issues. But it also told me that he wanted to have someone. He wanted to be with someone. So I, I don't judge. It's just not cut and dry. It's not like it is on TV, and then you go home and play ball with your kids, you know. It's not like that for me. Wow. I don't want people to think I'm just trying to sell your book. but And we are going to talk about some of this. But there's so much in your book as you tell these different cases, uh, these different stories about different people, that you hear that. And I 
We got to finish this page because it's important, and I want to give respect to the other three victims that we want to talk about. But I can't wait to talk to you about the emotional toll that this has taken on you, others that work these matters, and your family. So let's uh, let's continue. Okay. So I show him the missing person picture ask him if that's what they looked like, and he said yes. And uh, what he said is that on February 14th, he was at a woman's house that he called his girlfriend. Ironically, his girlfriend had two daughters that were around 8 and 10, right, in his fantasy age category. And he said that he went over there that day to carry out his fantasy. He says it by saying, those were my real intended victims. But while he was there, a neighbor from a nearby house came down and was hanging around. So he couldn't do it. So he says he goes back to the Cedar Lodge. And because he got himself all worked up to do this, he was still worked up. He went to try and calm himself down to the jacuzzi you know, at the Cedar Lodge, but the jacuzzi was dirty, and therefore he couldn't do it there. And then uh, he said even the swimming pool was was dirty. He actually serviced the jacuzzi and the swimming pool, and then when he took the keys, the master keys, he acted like he was putting them back, but he did not. And then he said he went for a walk in the parking lot. He had noticed that, I forget what, he he actually knew the actual room number. I think it was 177. I'm not 100% sure, though. He had noticed that in that room, there were four young girls, and he was really watching them. So he was watching incoming tourists as potential victims. And he saw that these young girls had a guy with them, So that kind of eliminated them from his consideration. So then he said he kept walking down the uh, parking lot and in the number five building in room 509, he said the curtain was a little bit ajar and he looked in and he saw the, the people, you know, he saw Sylvina, Julie, and Carol, just like in the pictures that we had recovered from the camera. And he knew that this was good. It was a good spot because it was pretty secluded. It was bad weather. You know, nobody could see him out there. And so he went back to his room at the Cedar Lodge. He got his kit. And then he went back out to where the number five building was. And he says that he went to all of the rooms around Carol Sun's room And he used the master key to enter. And he was knocking on the door. He was announcing in all these rooms that he was looking for a leak. Can I come in? He would act as if he was being let in. He would walk around in and he'd come back out and close the door. I asked him, you know, why were you doing this? And his answer was that he wanted to desensitize them so when he knocked on their door, they would not think, It was out of the ordinary. Eventually, he got to their door. He knocks on the door. 
and the door is just slightly open with, I think the chain was left on. I'm not, it was not in a situation where he could gain entry. So, uh, he, he announced to Carol, we're looking for a water leak. I need to get in and look for it. I need you to let me in. And Carol refused to let him in. And he could see from previously looking in on the curtain and from at the door that they were all in their bed clothes. They were watching Jerry Maguire on the television. They had rented a movie. And so Carol closed the door and knocks again the second time. And again, he announces he's with the management. There's a leak that's been recorded. He needs to come in and determine where the leak is. Will they please let him in? Carol, once again, refuses to let him in. Then the third time, he knocks on the door, and this time he says, all right, I'm going to go get the manager, and please pack up your stuff. We're going to move you to another room. And upon hearing this, Carol led him in to look for the leak. He says that he went to the bathroom. He pretended looking for the leak. And then when he came out of the bathroom, he was armed with his 22 caliber revolver. And when they saw the revolver, he announced to them that he wasn't there to hurt them. He was desperate for money and he needed their car. And then he would leave. And I think I want to note at this point that he prepared for a year to commit these crimes. And he knew part of his preparation to not reveal to the victim what his true intentions were, that if he gave them hope that it would be over, if they cooperated, that they'd be more compliant. And that's why he would misstate his intention. So he said to them, just cooperate with me and I'll be gone. So uh, he tied them all up. He took Julie and Sylvina into the bathroom, left them in there, closed the door, came out, put Carol on the bed. He got on top of her back and with the rope, the rope that we had seen at the crime, that was his rope, and used the rope to strangle her. He commented that it took so much strength and took so long to strangle her that he felt that he had done nerve damage to the ends of his hands because it was so difficult. But he could tell that she was dead because she was no longer moving. I think he described blood dripping from her nose. And then he says when he knew she was dead, he took her and he opened up the back hatch or the trunk of the car. He took her out to the car. He said he put her in and then he pushed her up as tight as he could push her. And I said, you know, why'd you do that? He said, because I knew there'd be more. So then he leaves oh, Carol wow. <laughs> He leaves Carol out in the car. I know, it's it's hard to hear. Yeah, it is. He leaves Carol in the car and he goes back in and now he brings the girls out. He cuts off their clothes and the bindings that he put on them. And he tries to initiate with them sexual activity. Now, he's not capable of gaining an erection. So he wants them to interact with each other and to interact with him. He takes a nutrient or supplement called Yohimbi 
he says that helps him sometimes, but that Sylvina did not understand English, uh, was unwilling to participate, and he also noted that she was having her menstrual cycle, which he says was a turnoff to him. So he takes Sylvina into the bathroom and strangles her in the bathtub. And then he comes back out and he describes that he's having sex with Julie. And he begins to believe and he's emotional about Julie because he wants to believe that she's beginning to love him and that he's beginning to love her. What? It's, that is just so warped. Warped, yes, but it's also a reflection of a person who's needy. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's true. And I guess well, my question is, and I'm listening to this, and I don't know what I'm, how I'm feeling, how I'm feeling about this guy. I'm getting a look in his mind that I never really considered before. He thinks this is okay. This is something that he needs. This is something that is natural to him. In my opinion, and it's just my opinion because there's a lot. One of the things that always bothers me, Jerry, is I don't have educational qualifications. I'm not a... uh, psychology major or psychiatrist or psychologist. I'm just me. And I don't know why it is I understand or think I understand. I mean, you know, people might disagree with me. But in my opinion, he is realizing his perceived need to have an intimate relationship with a woman. And because he's doing it with so much dominance, and no ability on the part of the victim to resist or indicate anything other. He wants to believe in his mind that she loves him. And I think the idea, the thought in his mind that she loves him is what he is searching for, what he wants, what he needs. It's just my opinion. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just giving you from my heart. Well, this is, this is also the same thing that we hear when it comes to pedophiles. They truly believe that they're in love with this five-year-old kid that they're molesting and that the five-year-old kid is in love with them and wants it and likes it. And it's so so foreign, but I think if you work in this area, then I guess it is necessary that you understand their thoughts and their motivation. I'd rather just lock them up. I think it's important to take a minute to discuss the fantasy of sexual offenders. What I mean by that is that the fantasy of a sexual offender, in my opinion, is in excruciatingly minute detail. As an example, you know, you have children, I have, I've been married, uh, I've been with my wife for 36 years, and I know that when I started going out with my wife and we had a big date coming up, I would spend the day working out, getting my muscles as big as I could, getting my stomach as in as I could. I would um, get my car cleaned up. I would do everything I could to prepare to have a wonderful time that night to impress her and to want her to want me. But with a sex offender, 
their fantasy takes that only as an outline, and they live in the second. Their fantasy exists by second, by minute. They think about what's said, what's done, the motions, the movements, where, here. They think about everything. And if their fantasy is not met, then their experience is not as fulfilling as it could be. For instance, if I was going to win the lottery, I think, all right, I'm going to pay off all my bills. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And we think about, okay, I'm going to go out and buy a car. Well, sex offender is going to think, I'm going to get this car with those tires, those wheels, that color, this option, that is into the nth degree of detail that you can imagine. So when Carrie Steiner talks about having a fantasy, in my opinion, in his mind, he has got it down to the actual acts, what happens. And in my opinion, from talking to him, in his mind, he's going to be sexually functional. And that's how his fantasy will conclude. And because he realizes that the partner he's doing this with could never be his real partner, his fantasy includes killing them. Because they don't play out the fantasy the way he wants them to? They kill him because that is the blueprint of the fantasy. That's how the story ends in this fantasy. In his fantasy, yes. That's my opinion. And I, I, keep, I want to stress, this is my opinion. I'm not saying this is fact. Everybody's welcome to believe and accept what they want. I've done so many confessions where this holds true that I believe what I believe because I've been told by so many. I believe you. I mean, I can, I can see it. I never, I've never really looked at it, allowed my mind to move into their rationalization before. You know, think of it this way. Uh, you know, a guy who works for an intelligence and they're doing a dead drop, whatever, they have to sit down and concentrate on detail. They have to work down to the greatest degree they can the detail. But they have to work at it. They have to they have to devote themselves, commit to thinking about them and working it out like a math problem. A sex offender, it all exists in his head because it's all he thinks about. By some means, them are hard to catch. Now, when you have such an intricately planned event and you've thought of everything or try to think of everything, yeah, it would be difficult for someone to be caught, someone to be stopped. And I guess that's why you have serial killers that have killed over and over again. You know, I have to yeah. say, I don't, I don't like serial killers. It, it, to me, it's a, um, it's something that people, I don't want to say, I don't want to use the word enjoy, but, you know, there's a lot of true crime podcasts that concentrate on serial killers. There's a whole genre of crime fiction of books just about serial killer murders. And that always amazes me, too, that people are fascinated by it to the point where they want to hear more about it and, and to dissect a person's mind and their motivation. It's, it's really, um, I, I guess it's like the same thing of, of why I, I turn down requests that I work innocent images. It gets into my head, and those thoughts and those that violence throws me off. As it should. Just to hear all of this, and, and I, I think the difference 
because, you know, because normally I, I would be freaking out. But I think the difference is there is compassion here. I'm getting from you this, I don't even know what the word is, and I don't want to be, look, sound all woo-woo, but it's like, <laughs> it's like a, almost like a channeling of if we're going to be able to stop people who are doing this, that there is a requirement to understand their thinking and their feelings and their motivation behind it. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, and that is, in my opinion, the contribution that has been given by the FBI behavioralists to the efforts to identify and stop these people. So, Terry, in his confession, is he laying everything out? How long does this confession take? It took six hours. From the moment and you get there or from the moment you actually start talking about the Yosemite Park murders? and. We skipped ahead a little bit, so I want to go back. Once you told him, we're not showing you any child pornography, that's that decision he has to make. How easy was that for him to make? I think he really considered it. I think he really thought about what his options were. But I've got to tell you, Jerry, that it was the opinion of my friends, and it's also my opinion, that the emotional intimacy he was seeking, he found with me. I get that, and that's, I guess that's what I was just, what I was just saying, that I was feeling that, that I, I'm kind of uncomfortable with the fact that I'm thinking of Terry, and I'm thinking of what he's seeing and his needs, and I'm just blown away that my thoughts are going in that direction, and they're only going in that direction is because you're leading me there, but so I can... Yeah. I can see why he found that connection with you. So let me go on then. So then Kerry, you know, is now interacting with Julie, and he feels emotion for her, and, and he wants to believe that she feels emotion for him. As this is going on, he hears this noise coming out of the bathroom that's distracting him. And this is a point in the interview where Kerry and I became almost adversarial because he describes it. He goes into the bathroom and he sees that the noise he's hearing is Sylvina breathing in and out through her nose while her mouth is duct taped. And he says to me, she's dead, but it's a reptilian reflex. And I was unwilling to accept that. And I said to him, she was breathing in, she was breathing out. He said, yes. And I said, would you agree that if she's breathing in and breathing out, she's alive? And he reluctantly said, yes. What did you do then? I got another piece of duct tape and I put it over her nose. And then I left to go out and continue what I was doing. This scene, in my mind, it gives me nightmares, daymares. Because in my mind, Jerry, I think Sylvina regained consciousness. And I keep seeing in my mind him putting the duct tape over my nose. And it plays out over and over and over. I always see it. I don't know if she was conscious, but I believe she was. And that's where he comes close to being a psychopathic because he could do that and be unmoved 
by the heinous action that it is. They could simply calmly walk in there and put a piece of tape on her nose because it's irritating him to hear her breathing and then go back out and continue what he was doing. That sits with me. Then uh, he goes back out and he's um, having his time with Julie. And then Julie says she has to go to the bathroom. And he says, well, I can't take her in the bathroom because her friend's there in the bathtub dead. So because he had the master keys, he takes her to the room next door, which is room 510. He puts her in room 510. And while she's in there going to the bathroom, he goes back to room 509, removes Sylvina from the bathtub, and stuffs her into the back of the Pontiac. Just as he said he was making room for more, he made room for Sylvina, and that's where he puts her. I also want to say, and I forgot to mention, Jerry, that before, when he took uh, Julie next door to room 510, he gave her a shaver, and uh, I'm not sure if he gave her, I think he gave her what she needed to be able to shave her pubic area. And that is because he and other sex offenders want to simulate the vagina of a child. Wow. So then after he removes Sylvina from the room, he packs up their stuff. He puts the suitcases and everything in the back of the Pontiac. That's when he uh, gets the towels wet and makes it look like that they had showered and left. He takes a blanket from the bed and a sheet and a pillowcase, and he uses the blanket because he's going to wrap it around Julie. He goes next door to room 510 and gets Julie, who's naked, puts the pink blanket around her, carries her out to the Pontiac, puts her in the passenger seat, and then she he drives by the main administrative office, and he drops off the master keys to where they're supposed to be. He says he doesn't know what he's going to do, but he gets in the car and he starts heading north on, room, on uh, Route 49, which is uh, one of the main thoroughfares from north to south in the uh, eastern part. And he's driving north on 49, and he's trying to make conversation with her. He is trying to pretend that she's with him out of choice, because he takes the moment to say that when he dropped the master keys off, she could have gotten out of the car and run away, but she didn't. So he takes her reluctance to leave as desire to be with him. And so as they're driving up 49 and he's talking to her, he's asking her, what's your name and where do you live and your family? You know, he wants to get to know her. Everything she says to him is a lie. She tells him her name is Sarah. She gives him false information about where she lives, about her parents, everything. And in my opinion, when you consider that in that situation she did that, she is nothing less than a hero. She is a true hero. When she was tested and had to act, she not only provided false information, but she cooperated with him because she didn't know where her mother or her friend was. And she did what she did, trying to ensure that they would survive, not knowing that they were in the back of the car dead. As they proceeded up 49, 
he says to her that he loves her, and he's thinking about, can he keep her? He wants to keep her. But he realizes that he can't. He has to get rid of the car. He has to get rid of Julie. He has to get rid of everything. So as he's driving north on Route 49, that's where he pulls into the Don Pedro Reservoir where the dog found Julie's body. And he describes that Julie's naked and barefooted, so he carried her into the brush. And I asked him, you know, how did you carry her? And he demonstrates how a husband carries a bride over the threshold. And he carries her. He lays out the blanket. He says they continue having sex on the blanket, which is very hard for me to accept because it's like 40 degrees and she's naked. So it's hard to understand that she's comfortable. During this time, he's telling her that he loves her. He wishes there was some way that they could work out and be together, that when he took control of her and her mother and friend, that there were no bullets in the gun. He wants to believe, any way he can make it, that she's with him out of choice. And he said, as he's with her on the blanket, and they're having this sexual contact, he realizes the sun is coming up, and he needs to do what he's got to do. So he sits her up on her knees, and he comes in from behind her with the knife, and he cuts her throat. But he does not cut with efficiency or effect. And basically, she's there still on her knees, and she makes a motion for him to see where she takes her hand and puts it into the shape of a gun and holds it against her head. She's asking him to shoot her. During the description of this, he emotionally breaks down and starts crying. He says he goes up to her again and he tells her, you know, he doesn't have any bullets. And then he takes his knife and he cuts her throat again. And this time he steps back and watches her bleed out. As she falls, she eventually falls over and dies. He says he then uh, rolls her body down to be covered by brush. And he doesn't say it, but from the crime scenes, it's my opinion that he posed her. And he then comes back up to the spot they were at, and he says he looked out over the reservoir with the rising sun and just was amazed with the beauty of the scene. He then goes back to the car. He strips the clothes off of Carol and Selena. He ends up throwing them into a dumpster. We never recovered them. He says then he gets in the car, and he continues driving north on Route 49, and he gets to the area near Sonora, which is, I think it's about 80 miles away. I'm not 100% sure of that. And he looks for a place where he can put the car, and he finds kind of like a pullout from the road by a small housing community, and he puts the car in there and locks the car up. And with the $200 he got from Carol, he flags a cab because he missed the bus, and he has a cab drive him to the Yosemite Lodge, which is right down the road from the Cedar Lodge, and he gets off there. The cab driver had never reported the fare because she tried to keep the $100, but when they put out a call, 
for that cab driver, she did come forward. And then he says he goes back to the Cedar Lodge, to his room, and he just is exhausted and gets some sleep. And then he gets his international scout. And out there, they always carry extra gasoline in their cars in case they run out. He drives back up to the vehicle where he parked it up in um, the Long Barn, Miwok area. And he spreads gasoline all over the car, deliberately leaves the rear passenger side door open. And he says he scratches in the hood of the car, we had fun with Sarah, or we have Sarah, something like that. Whatever it was he scratched into the hood, when we learned of it, we sent the hood back to the FBI laboratory, and the laboratory was able, through their metallurgists, to find the scratchings that were consistent with what he said. He says he lights the car up, and when he lights the car up, he says it just takes off burning, and it kind of you know freaked him out a little bit. And because the burning was so intense, the wires for the horn shorted out and the horn went off and the horn was going off for a while. But uh, he just left, got into a scout. He said he drove back down 49 and drove out to Modesto where he threw out the some of the belongings of Carol and the girls. And I personally believe that's why her wallet was found in that intersection in Modesto, because I think that's near where he threw out their stuff. And then he went home. And because he had watched the Learning Channel and the Discovery Channel, and he learned about Unabom and Trace Evidence and writing and indented writing and all these things, he shaved his body for two weeks so there'd be no trace evidence to recover from him, and he left from the Cedar Lodge. And after about two weeks from watching the news, he saw that it was all right for him to come back because he saw that the FBI was not looking for him. So then he came back, and it was bothering him that Julie was laying out in the wilderness. And he wrote the letter. We had fun with this one. And he created indented writing. So just for your listeners, when you write on a tablet of paper, you're also making an indent into the paper behind the paper you're writing on, and that's called indented writing. And a lot of times when you examine that indentation writing underneath where the page that the note was written on, you can get clues from it. And in this case, the clues showed a Hispanic shopping list, Hispanic names, and it appeared that who had ever written the note, we had fun with this one, was a Hispanic person. He did that deliberately, and then he went and he found uh, a small Hispanic boy coming out of a restaurant, and he told the boy that he needed the boy's saliva for a paternity test because he didn't want to be flagged as the father and that he would pay the boy $5 for his saliva. So the boy spit into a cup for him, he gave him the $5, and then he used that saliva to seal the envelope that he mailed to the FBI, knowing that the envelope would be checked for the DNA on the saliva that sealed it, knowing that the indented writing would be checked, 
and that based on the indented writing and the saliva, you know, it was a clear indication that the person responsible might have been a Hispanic person. The FBI laboratory, when they did the analysis on the seal of the envelope of the letter, commented that whoever licked the envelope didn't just lick it, but they slobbered on it. There was such an abundance of saliva where the flap was licked. And, of course, we know that was from him dipping his glove. Then he said that uh, he sent the letter and uh, he just waited and then realized at some point that uh, he was good to go. Very calculated guy. After the confession, I went home to my wife that night to try and figure out how I would tell his family the next day. I know you're going to ask me about that, so I'll skip over that for now. But then after meeting with his family in the morning, I went to Joey's cabin, and there I met uh, John and Ken and Carrie. And the four of us together spent the day doing uh, evidence retrieval based on Carrie's directions. And because of him, we were able to retrieve uh, Joey Armstrong's, uh, the duct tape, and her watch stuck to the duct tape that he used to bind her. We were able to recover the knife he used to kill her. He directed us to where he left the pink blanket he had wrapped around Julie, and we recovered that. And then he took us to where he had killed Julie and pointed to where he had thrown that duct tape and the knife. So eventually, not only do we have his confession, but all the evidence he mentioned was recovered. So based on the fact that you had this confession, you had all of this evidence, please tell me that he pled guilty. No. uh, Actually, what happened was because there was a murder in the park, which is federal, and we had the murders in Maricosa County, which was state, there was controversy over whether who would prosecute him first. The feds wanted to prosecute him because they would get the death penalty for him more quickly. But Joey Armstrong's mother, Leslie, did not believe in the death penalty and agreed to let him to plead guilty federally for life without the possibility of parole. With the state, they wanted the death penalty for Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. And so that went through a full death penalty trial and and penalty phase, and he was sentenced to death. And you said you did testify in that state trial. Yes, I testified in the state trial. I was on the stand for about seven days. The cross-examination on me by the defense attorneys was was brutal. But I will share something with you. I, I normally do share it. After all this ended, I was ordered by my SAC because he knew how much this case had gotten to me. I was ordered to go to the pronouncement of the death sentence, which I did not want to go. I drove down there by myself. The trial was held in Santa Clara. There was a change of venue. The courtroom was on the fifth floor. I drove by myself. I got in the elevator. I got off on the fifth floor. When I stepped off the elevator, the jury was there. They had come for the sentencing. And because of the brutality of the cross-examination, the jury members, when I stepped off, grabbed me up and started hugging me and kissing me and just holding me and telling me 
what a great job I had done and how wonderful I was. And then the Stainers saw me with the jury and I had gone down and I'd spent several hours with the Stainers to prepare them. And they came over and were hugging me and kissing me and thanking me. And their relatives were telling me, had I not gone down there and done what I've done, it's very likely they would have taken their own lives. His relatives were so distraught that they were considering taking their own lives based on this? The relatives told me that Carrie's parents, Delbert and Kay, were so distraught that I had not gone down there and spent the time with his parents that I did that his parents would have taken their lives. Because of the fact they had this one son that these terrible things had been done to, and now they had another son who was actually doing those type of things. Too much for them. Yes. And then uh, the victim's families came over to me, and I was in the middle of the jury, the victims, and the stainers all at once. And everybody was so close to each other that I overheard the stainers apologize to the victim's families for what their son had done. It was, for me, more than I could bear. I just didn't know what to think because what did the stainers think because the victims were hugging me? What did the victims think because the stainers were hugging me? It was just too much for me. It was the most, it was the hardest emotional moment I had in my career. And what did that look like? I mean, were you were you crying? Were you shaking? Um, extreme depression and and anxiety. Went into the courtroom. I sat by myself. The judge is named Thomas C. Hastings. He was the same judge that sentenced Richard Allen Davis on the polyclass case. And as he was pronouncing the death sentence. He lost his composure, went back to chambers, regained his composure, came out, and sentenced Carrie to death. And then I immediately left, went to my car, and drove home. And this is where I think we're going to get the most value from this case review. I will tell you this. I'm very uncomfortable with some of the graphic details. I'm going to leave this part right here in the interview, because I want listeners to know that I'm grappling with some of the the graphic details, you know, that you shared with us because of the same thing that you're talking about. I mean, there are going to be some people who are going to listen to this and be able to handle it, and there's going to be some people who are not going to be able to handle it, who are going to have nightmares. I will tell you, I might have a nightmare tonight. So I'm going to have to decide what I'm going to leave because these cases, for some people, and I'll see if you agree, can help you learn how to safeguard yourself in the future. So there's so many good lessons that we can learn from reviewing these type of cases. But these cases could also make people more fearful, more depressed. And I think one of the things that we need to to talk about, I'm going to let you just tell us about the ramifications of you working this case. But one of the things that I think is so important for this story is the fact that your father ran a funeral home. You were used to being around dead bodies 
growing up, you were in there in the in the embalming room. He wanted you helped with the family business. He wanted you to take over the family business. So you know you have you were somebody who was used to being around death, being around people who had to deal with the loss of their loved ones. And not everybody dies because, you know, they were sick and died. There are people who die of horrific death, and you were around that. So where does that fit in all of this? And the fact that this case took you to a low, low, low point in your life. I remember growing up, and my dad wasn't around very much. Every time the phone would ring, it would be a family calling for my father because he had such a good way of helping people through these hard times. I was fascinated by death in the sense of the stories that they told. I was always interested in the story behind the death. I was never interested in being a funeral director or an embalmer that just was not for me. But I did have this fascination with the stories. And I was in awe of my father for how he helped people. But at the same time, my father, in doing that, always chose those families. He chose to be with those families instead of being with us. He was never around. When I was growing up, I mean, very... Really, did my dad ever show up at my stuff? And when he did, it was such a, a surprise and a treat, but invariably he'd be on the phone and have to go. So I wouldn't say that I grew up with my dad being close to me. After I became an FBI agent, and that was like 1978, in 1979, my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer. And I just decided he was my dad, and I wanted to be close to him for his last years. And in those last two years, I got to know my dad better than I had in all the previous years. And what I realized is he was a great guy. I loved him. And I was proud of him. And I was really proud of how people were with him. So when these things started happening with me, I felt that in a way I was honoring in my way my father for what he had done in his way. And that sense of helping people felt really good. And I've got to say that when our oldest son was sick and Lori and I were dealing with this, the doctors, the nurses, people that we came into were so generous and so caring and meant so much to us that I and Lori, too, had developed this mission in life to try and mean as much to others as these people have meant to us. So between that and honoring my father, the work I ended up doing, I felt, was a way of, of doing that. Well, let me ask you one important question that I should have asked you earlier. How is your son doing? How did he, how did he make out? My son is alive and well, and he recovered he was demonstrating the worst symptoms, the symptoms that are indicative of the terminal illness. But they ended up doing a biopsy on his kidney, and when they examined the biopsy, it was a little 
confusing because while he was showing the symptoms of the worst of the strains, the biopsy indicating he had the least damaging of the strains. The thing they had to do was figure out a way to get him out of this relapse. What happened is they, they usually prescribe prednisone in huge doses, but for my son to stop working. And so they ended up telling us about an experimental course of chemotherapy, a drug called chlorambucil. And uh, I signed all the permissions so that if my son didn't survive, my wife wouldn't have, wouldn't feel that she had anything to do with it. And it was a 12-week course, but after five weeks, he was exposed to chickenpox. But the five weeks turned out to be long enough, and it took him about two years to regain his normal physical composure um, because the edema had swollen him up so bad. But that after a couple of years, you know, he was he was okay. But it it has left its mark on him in the sense that he's you know he, kids made fun of him during this time, and so he's always you know suspect of people, and he's always worried people are going to make fun of him. My second question is, when I was reading the, the very beginning of your, of your book, you talked about not wanting to go into management. And that's something that I've really not talked about in all the other interviews that I've done. And, you know, there's a joke that the Bureau's the only one job where people are fighting to stay at the bottom because a lot of people do not want to be managers with the FBI because it entails moving around a lot, and it also is, is a very high-pressure job because people are trying to keep moving up, and sometimes they make decisions based on the fact of how it's going to affect them personally as far as moving up in the Bureau. And so you said you didn't want to do that because it meant putting your career over your family. But I have to tell you, in listening to you and in you telling these stories, I think you might have ended up doing that anyway, and I take it that that's part of the depression that you that you experienced after this case. After all these cases, yes, I did not consciously put the work ahead of my family. On those instances, when I when I look back and I realize how I responded to these cases and how they affected me. It took me a while to realize, and when I did, I became harmful to myself of what I had put my family through. Not only had I not chosen for my family, but I had harmed them, and that was too much to live with. One of the things throughout your discussion is you over and over again have mentioned your wife and discussing things with her and making decisions about, you know, work actions. That, that you talked with her about it. So it sounds like she was right in this with you, supporting you and being understanding. Yes. And one of the things that happened to me, after the Stainer confession, I had a pretty hostile work environment. And to escape, I went ahead and got knee replacements because uh, from the years of running and working out, my knees were pretty well shy. And I, I literally did the knee replacements as an escape. And when I did my right knee replacement five months later, I got a staph infection. It nearly killed me. And we didn't know it at the time, but when I got that staph infection, I, I was for a short time in a coma, and it damaged the ability of my pituitary gland. It took 
six years to figure it out. But during those six years, I had no cortisol, which is, you know, the fight or flight thing. And I had no testosterone, which means, you know, not only I was worthless to my wife and to everybody else. During that six years, the doctors theorized because of the, the trauma of the cases that it had depressed the function of my immune system. And for those six years, you know, I was, I was very ill emotionally. I was suicidal. I mean, I got to the point where I was thinking about when I would be at a crime scene with a dead child or a dead body, I, I feel that they were lucky because it was over for them. They didn't have to go through it. And, uh, I started, you know, feeling that way. And there were actually two incidences. Uh, one time my wife and I were arguing and, and she just said out of anger, you know, you're, you don't really want to hurt yourself. And I don't believe you. And I, I took the weapon and I put it upside my head and I was so close. And what stopped me was that I could see her face go to pure horror. Uh, it just shocked me. And she's never gotten over it to this day. It sits with us all the time. At some point after that, we also had an argument over money. Money's tight, you know, money's always tight. And, uh, there was an issue over money, and again, I had this feeling that I was done, and I told uh, Lori and my sons, you know, I, I told Lori, you call 911 and tell them I'll be at the bottom of the hill because I kept my weapons in the car. And it took them about five seconds to figure out what I was doing. And there was this mad rush to the bureau car, me trying to get in and them trying to keep me out. It went on for about 30 minutes, and they prevailed. I couldn't get to the car. Lori called um, my friend Chris Campion and Chris Hopkins, and the next day Chris Campion came down and was going to take me up to live with him, but I didn't have the strength to leave my family, as ironic as that sounds. And uh, he sat me down in front of my sons, and he had each one of them describe to me what it would have meant to them if I had succeeded. And how and old are they at this time? At, the, at this time, they were about 10 years old. Uh, my one was 10. As I'm telling, my wife's sitting here with me as I'm doing this with you, and, it, you know, it, it's just something that always affects us. And when I saw them describe how they felt and demonstrate it, um, it hit me that what I was doing was just so wrong and so selfish that I swore that no matter how I felt, I would never, ever do it again. And um, I think that was the beginning of me starting to work on coming back to life. Were you still working at this time? Yes. I did an interview a couple of weeks ago with Vince McNally, who I don't know if you know him. He was uh, the person who initiated the employee assistance program for the Bureau. And uh, he's done a lot of studies. And even now, as a, as a retired agent, he does a lot of training for police departments on law enforcement suicides and, and, and programs to support them. How do you feel you were supported at work during this time period? 
I felt supported, number one, by my wife and sons. I mean, they're the key to my survival. And immediately behind them would be, you know, my friends at work. Um, we call them the Chris's and Hitman. And, but, you know, it was a hostile environment at work that helped contribute to it, the anxiety of going in every day. It sounds like you don't want to get too much into that, but I think we've got to get a, a little better understanding of the okay. hostile work environment. If this is out of jealousy because you had gotten this confession? You know, I don't even, I don't know how to describe what their feeling was. All I can tell you is that I was asked several times whether Stainer had done this by himself. And each time my answer was that I've never seen a sexually dysfunctional offender ascend in the presence of other men. And for three years after the confession, my SAC devoted bureau resources, including electronic surveillance, to try and show some link between Stainer and those two guys. They told oh, he the wouldn't put that he wouldn't he wouldn't put that away. He still wanted to be right about the two initial people they had fingered for the case. Right. And the thing that bothers me the most about that jury is that they told the victim families that these two guys had been part of it and they never backed away from that. So as we're sitting here today, there's some of the victim families that believe Stainer did this with these two other guys who haven't been prosecuted for it. I got calls years after the case. I stayed for six years after, seven years after the case, and I was getting calls three, four, five years into it from people who were claiming they had evidence that Stainer was associated with Dyson Larwick. And I can't begin to tell you how much money I think that one of the victim families spent on private investigators running out leads trying to show some connection between Kerry Stainer and Dyson Larwick. But they never, ever found any connection. And I asked Stainer in the interview if he knew them or had anything to do with them, and he said he did not. So your depression was not necessarily based on all the work that you did. That might have primed you. But it sounds like what really pushed you was the disrespect and the treatment that you received from your SAC and, and, and other management. Yes, that contributed. You asked me about my wife. I want to tell you that those six years where I didn't have any hormones or anything working and I was going through this thing, I mean, she stood by me and she bore the atrocities that I did. I was angry. I was resentful. I believe she's the one who kept me alive. And, and she retired March 31st, 2018. And I will tell you that um, since she retired, it's been the happiest time of my life, having her home all the time. You know, when Stainer uh, confessed and I got home that night, I mean, she stayed up with me all night, figuring out what to say to his parents the next day. She helped me figure out ways to describe this to my children. In these cases, it wasn't just Stainer. I was getting interviewed for a TV show, and I told them at the outset, do not ask me 
if this case is more important to me than any other case or, or anything like that. And sure enough, they asked the one question I asked them not to ask me. And, and my answer was, how can you tell one victim they're not as important as another victim? How can you tell one victim family that a different victim family would mean more to you? So all these cases are as important to me. And with each one of these cases, when I come home and the effect it has on me, I share that with my wife. We had one case where we had a guy who he hit two children over the head with a shovel, broke the shovel, put him in a grave alive, and they they died in the grave. And I came home that night, and it, my wife, you know, consoled me, and I, I cried to her and told her we would get this guy, and it wasn't going to stand. This guy was not going to get away. And, and you know, and we got him. We got him. And so in a cumulative sense, she's been affected because she's the one I go to with all this. In 2005, we got a new SAC in our office. His name was Drew Perenni. What happened to the old one? The one that was, was giving you all the hassle? He and the ASAC were removed by the inspectors. I think it's important to dwell on when you say the people at the office. When I left home and I wasn't with Lori, and I'd go into the office, it was the people in the office that sustained me while I was at the office. As as bad as some of this stuff was, that's how good some of the people were with me. And I don't want it to be lost that the FBI, the majority of the FBI, the overwhelming majority of the FBI are good people. And as far as the work goes, they are the reason I was able to do what I was, we did it together. I didn't do it myself. I've been at crime scenes and seen other agents get down on their hands and knees in the mud looking for evidence. I I was at a crime scene where we went into a house and the house was such a health risk and the, and the agents and the support people were all in there going through this. I eventually got to the point where I said, that's it, we're done. Everybody leave because it was too much of a risk to them. Um, I don't want people to lose sight of the fact of the majority of these people care or hardworking in the work sense they sustained me. So as much as people want to hear about the controversial stuff and the things that were done to me by a few people, it's the majority of people that I associate. When I think back to the FBI I think about those people. I think about when we were getting ready to do the raids on Larwick and Dykes, I remember seeing a friend of mine, and we thought this was going to be the answer. We were like, this is it. We're going to get them. When we both said hello to each other, we had tears in our eyes because we thought that we were going to resolve this. And that's how much people care. I'm not alone in that regard. In 2005, we got a new SAC named Drew Perini, and he, he called me in his office because uh, Director Mueller was changing the priorities of the FBI away from working crimes against children. And he was asking me about crimes against children. And I, you know, I, I went on, I gave him these long explanations of why, how I thought we helped and how we brought resources that meant the difference. And Jerry, he looked at me and he said to me, how are you doing? First time, first time I start crying. And I said, you know, I don't know how I'm doing. I said, you know, I'm not sure. And I think I've harmed my family. And I'm sure people had told him how bad I was. I was in bad shape. I mean, to the onlooker, I looked bad. 
And he said for the next year, he was going to do everything he could to help me retire in health. And he did. And uh, I'll never forget him for that. I remember that my proudest moment was at my retirement party, you know, bringing my wife and children in for everybody to see. And then, you know, half the people at my retirement party were from outside the bureau, which, you know, they're all local state law enforcement. It made me so proud. And so I left on great terms. What kind of things did he did to help you leave on a high note? He wanted me to go to a PTSD counselor down in the L.A. area. So he actually sent my wife and I down for a week to San Bernardino to meet with the PSD counselor. Ironically, uh, she never finished getting through the debriefing. I had worked so many of these cases. And one of the things that, that hit me was that from the debriefings of, I've been to a few counselors now, but from the debriefings of the counselors, I've worked so many of these cases that that when I start talking about them, we just it just goes on and on and on, kind of like you're probably thinking this call is going. We had a case in 1996, an eight-year-old boy brutally murdered. And there were six of us down at the site where this boy had been killed. And there was a news helicopter hovering. And there was the, the case detective and the coroner and then myself and then three other FBI people. And uh, they were all doing the crime scene. And I remember standing there watching the ants crawling on the boy and watching him. And um, when we rolled him over, you know, he was gripping a toy or a, a trinket. And we were able to identify that that trinket came from the offender. But when it came time, they were going to float the boy out on the boat. And I begged them, in fact, and they realized, you know, we can't give that to the family. We can't have them see their baby floating out on a river patrol boat under a blue tarp. So the coroner and the case detective and myself, we carried this boy out in our arms about 100 yards under the canopy of trees so the helicopter couldn't see him. I know I've never recovered, and I've seen the coroner a couple times, and I know he hasn't recovered. Uh, And the case detective, I'm not sure if he did any more of these cases after that. You know, what we've done, one thing, and that is to assume that everybody knew what you meant by PTSD. And and it really is an acronym that has become well-known. But I want to make sure that if there are people out there, they know that we're talking about post-traumatic stress syndrome. Yes. What what are some of the things that you think that law enforcement, not just the FBI, but law enforcement can do to make sure that people who are working these cases, because I told you from the beginning, I would never even think about working these cases. I would be definitely somebody who would be traumatized. I'm, I'm traumatized right now by doing this interview, and I don't mean to say that lightly. I don't want to, to, to minimize. I just know that I could not handle this. So what are some of the things that, you felt should have been done or could have been done that would have enabled you not to feel the effects of post-traumatic stress syndrome from working these type of cases? Well, I think the first thing I need to say is I don't think there are a lot of people that have done what I've done. So I don't know that in my case, you can point to a failure of the system. I, I think as far as what I've done, I might be an aberration. But what would have helped me is the ability to know that I should have shared with my wife earlier, that I should have shared with people how I felt, 
how it was getting to me, what my feelings were. Instead, in law enforcement, we kind of acknowledge things through innuendo. One of the guys I really respect when I came back from a crime scene, the simple fact that he acknowledged how bad the crime scene was, you know, I kind of walked off to myself and just let loose in the bathroom. I think knowing that you're not alone in feeling the way you feel. One of the goals of the book is not just to tell the story, but for other guys that are out there that have worked what I've worked or have been exposed to what I've been exposed know that it's not abnormal for them to feel the way they feel and that they need to talk about it and and not let themselves go down the road that I went down. And it wasn't until I completely opened up to Lori that I actually started feeling better. When we took my oldest son to go to college, for instance, he wanted to go to college five hours away from home, which I begged him not to do. And when we took him, coming back, I, I had an emotional breakdown. I had an emotional breakdown while we were down there and driving back. And every mile we drove on the way back was another mile away from him, and I couldn't take it. It was it was eating me up. And I didn't really share it as much as I should have. I should have shared why I felt the way I did. I've been to a crime scene where a wonderful boy was killed by his two best friends, brutally killed by his two best friends. So I would come home, and I didn't want my sons going out with their friends. I didn't want them going on sleepovers. I had their school buses stopped to check if they were on there. If I didn't know where they were, they hadn't checked in, It would uh, I'd go crazy. There was one morning where I was away from home, and my son was downloading on, you know, Internet on the telephone line, and I couldn't get through. So the next morning at 6 a.m., I had the local law enforcement to our house come in and do a welfare check. So they came in and went to my house, guns drawn, doing a welfare check through my family. These are things that could have been avoided if I had understood what I was experiencing. And I think that's what's very important at this point in the interview, to make sure that your message is, is getting out there, that we're not being voyeuristic, that there is value in telling your story. I feel inadequate, so I want you to help me make sure that, I, that I'm that i doing that. Well, you are, and um, that was a mission. You know, people talk how open I am and how how much I try and reveal. And that is is my way of trying to show others what's happened to me and that if I can be strong enough to talk about it and acknowledge it, then hopefully they'll understand that not only are they not feeling anything that's abnormal, but that it can help them to do that. So I think part of my openness is trying to tell others that I I feel a sense of comfort by being open about it. It makes me feel better. And I guess that's because it got to the point because you were doing just the opposite. You weren't sharing. No, I was was sharing, but I was sharing through anger and deed, angry deed. And I was having a loss of my ability to control my anger. One of the ways that it presents in me is that Things will trigger me into being emotionally depressed. And so now when that happens, I I tell Lori and she 
and she helps me get through it. It's never going to go away. I have nightmares almost every night. I'm just going to ask this question because you're being you're being open and frank, and uh, I just want to know: is that too much for Lori? Well, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. Uh, you know, it's it's funny, Jerry. My wife, Lori, and my sons wanted me to write something to leave behind for them to try and explain all this so they would understand. And when I did that, they wanted me to see if a literary agent would be interested. So I learned how to do a book proposal, and I sent it out to a bunch of literary agents, and I got like 13 responses. And I, I took these responses, and I put them away, and I lied to Lori, and I said that there was no interest. And then one of the literary agents persisted, and and. Lori realized that I, I had not been truthful, which was not a, a good thing. And I just resolved to myself that one way of honoring my family is to see this through. So the fact that we're talking and that my book is out there, I'm doing that to honor my family. It's hard to do this, but this is one of the things I promised my family I would do. And if I don't, then I'm not honoring my commitment and I'm not recognizing what I did to them. Let's talk about that a little, if you don't mind. Yeah. What do you think that you did to them? <clears throat> it's hard to... You sit in a chair and you stare into the distance and you don't hear people talking to you or you don't want them to talk to you or you, you act in ways that you want them to leave you alone, to be by yourself. You stay in bed all day, wanting to be left alone, um, trying to hide your feelings. There was something that happened in Yosemite. Um, we were watching a movie that echoed what had happened, and I was a mess for two days. And um, basically, my way of dealing with it was to get up and go to the bathroom and just break down crying. Now, I don't go to the bathroom. I let them see it, and I explain to them why. Um, do you, do you think Do you think you're... I have to say, and again, I'm just going to be honest, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like you are well yet. <laughs> I, I still have nightmares. I, last week, I was talking to a friend from the office, and I broke down emotionally, and I couldn't talk to her for a while. No, I'm I'm not. I'll never recover from what I experienced. And the only way I have of dealing with my family is to be open and honest with them about how I'm feeling so they can calculate that in to how they perceive me. And I would also think that one thing that's also very important, that when you are sharing this, that people are willing to listen, that they're not like, oh, we better not talk about that, or, oh, I don't want to hear this, or I, you know, shouldn't, should you be telling me this? I, I take it that there are some instances where people are uncomfortable with your openness and your honesty. Yes, but I would say overwhelmingly, they're grateful. You know, it's funny, I got... I got stopped once. I'm, I'm a heavy, I'm a, I'm a lead foot driver. And I got stopped once by CHP. And, uh, I started talking to the CHP officer because, you know, I identified myself and I had a weapon in the car and then we started talking. 
and the CHP officer had been present when his partner was shot and killed. And then we both started talking about our post-traumatic stress, and uh, it, it made us both feel better to know that we were each there. You know, one of the things that's really needed, I don't know if you're going to do this, but the person who needs to be interviewed is Lori. You know, I had a co-author for the book, and she was interviewing Lori, and it was amazing for me to hear Lori's observations and how she felt and what she thought. It was amazing to me. And She's sitting right there next to you, right? Yes. I would, I would love mm-hmm. to hear Hi. from her. Hi, Lori. I had explained to Jeff that my whole purpose was to read the Yosemite case, and I didn't go past to your chapters or the chapters of your son. So I I had no idea that the interview was going to go in this direction, and I feel such a responsibility to, to be asking the right questions. So I would love to include some words from you, too, about what you believe. Is that a fair question to ask you? Jeff feels the family is victims, too. We were like his last... <laughs> I hate I, I hate that term, but, you know, he goes, you were victims because this is, you know, each chapter is a victim. And he goes, my family was a victim, too. Yeah. And so, you know, the last chapter is about the family. Right. So you saw all of this happening to Jeff. Were there things that you felt that people in the office could have been doing to help you help him? I think their first job is to help him. And it's the whole law enforcement um, perspective of, you know, you've got to be strong. You you can't have emotion. And that I think that's really prevalent in a lot of the different law enforcement agencies. I mean, you see it, you know, it's kind of a macho form of uh, a workplace. And that, I think, is, is the real difficulty there. Um, I've been with Jeff for like 36 years now and his whole, uh, most of his career with the FBI. And we used to kind of joke about, you know, some of the FBI agents that we said had the for real. Um, you know, they wouldn't tell their family anything. They kept everything quiet. And Jeff was never that way. I mean, I, I don't know whether that's good to mention or not, but he, he told us everything. Yes, I mean when he when we got to Sacramento and and you know the crime scenes were so difficult. I mean, he shared a lot with me, but there's still a lot, as he mentioned, that he didn't didn't tell me. But I think it's the whole aspect of law enforcement and not realizing that people can be affected by PTSD other than things like war. So I, I think the first thing is they is. Um, law enforcement needs to realize that their employees that work some of these cases, they they need to to ask how they're doing. Um, just like his uh, uh, SAC Drew Perini. I mean, that was when when he called Jeff into his office. I mean, Jeff actually broke down because it was the first time any SAC had ever said to him, "How are you doing?" And that was it was that simple. Three words: "How are you doing?" And and he forward, um, like Jeff said, he wasn't able to complete the sessions because uh, she couldn't even get to every case that he had gone through. But that's what I think is needed. And then, you know, secondly, um, you know, trying to maybe help the families deal with it. But I, 
I think by dealing with the law enforcement officers themselves and then dealing with the family, I think that's what's needed. And I, I don't think there is a lot of that. Well, that is a shame. So let me ask yeah. a question. How are you both doing? Oh, we're, we're both doing much better. I mean, uh, when Jeff went through his really difficult time, um, part part of that hormone issue was uh, he almost died and his pituitary stopped working. So that led to the decrease in hormones. But our anxiety and stress can also do that. So he had a really bad, uh, you know, incident of uh, his pituitary completely stopped working. But but anxiety and stress can affect the cortisol levels, the testosterone levels, and testosterone also can affect depression, anxiety, if you don't have enough testosterone. So it's not just the sexual aspect, but it, it deals with uh, anxiety and depression. He actually went on hormone treatment and things got much, much better, but that didn't stop, that doesn't stop the nightmares of the cases, you know, that he's worked. He's still, the most recent surgery, uh, he came out of surgery and they gave him some pain medication, some medication to help, and it put him into unbelievable um, nightmares of all the cases. He was just running through the cases. It was just unbelievable. So they're, they're still locked in there. It, you know, he's doing much better now. We're doing better, but uh, I don't know that it will ever, ever go away. I don't, I don't, it's in his memory. It comes out at certain times. It sounded like you really wanted him to, to write this book and you really wanted him to be able to share his story with the public. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and, and why you thought it would be beneficial? Honestly, it, it started out as I really wanted him to to tell his story to our kids because being Jewish and having birth defects and becoming an agent, I thought was an unbelievable story. And then all the cases he worked, I really wanted him to leave his memories to our children. And uh, once he wrote that, and it was so heartfelt, um, we just thought that maybe it would be helpful for others to hear about what he's gone through. And he does have PTSD, and we're hoping that we're sure there's many other people out there and in the law enforcement area job-wise that have this, and actually hoping that it could help other people that may be going through this and not feel so alone and maybe help other people to open up more. I, I think that somebody who's going through this really needs to, to open up. They need to talk. Just keeping it inside is just very, very harmful. Do you believe that in him taking the time to actually write these stories, to really look at what happened in a chronological order, how he felt, what was going on, do you believe that it, it's helped, that it's helpful? Uh, ooh, that's a really difficult question. Um, he's feeling a lot of anxiety. <laughs> I'm not sure that it helped. Oh, boy, that's so difficult to answer. I just see the anxiety that he has about it, and he's reminding me that just he, he doesn't like attention. He doesn't like being the center of attention, and he is worried about 
what the book will bring as far as that's concerned. But we have talked about the fact that we hope this, and, and I hope he speaks to this, that um, we do hope that others that are suffering from the trauma of working uh, these type of cases or anything that has totally traumatized them, that that they seek uh, openness with their families and that they perhaps seek some type of help. I can understand that. And I can also understand his anxiety because this has been, I mean, we've been talking for over four hours. It's been absolutely emotional for me to listen to this story. I would imagine that there's going to be a lot of people who will want to hear this story because his honesty, his transparency is absolutely amazing. And you know, people are going to want to to hear that. Yeah, I smiled because Jeff said that's what he learned from me to you know be open about it and um, uh, you know to to say what his feelings are. And I, I agree. I hope I I hope that that's the case. Um, we've given the manuscript to a number of different people, and we've actually gotten that comment back to read about a law enforcement officer, not just the day to day, you know case things, but to actually hear the emotional, personal part of of what the toll these takes, cases take on them is a very different perspective than what they've seen in a lot of other books. No doubt about that. I mean, for someone to say, you know, I'm human, I have failure, to share your vulnerability is something that is, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here... <laughs> you know, kind of blown away with the honesty and the rawness uh, Mm -hmm. of this interview. The personal aspect of all this is definitely, it's, it's important. It's, it's so out there and out front and people just sometimes don't realize it. I can't emphasize enough, I guess, because my background is biology and I have a master's in physiology, but the the whole issue of anxiety and depression and relating to hormone levels is so important and people just don't realize how stress and anxiety can you know affect your hormones you know we had no idea for 6 years that Jeff had no literally zero cortisol and testosterone and it's unbelievable what that does to a person and how he acts in his thoughts it would be so good to make people aware that, you know, when you go through trauma and things, that, that affects your body and it can affect how your body uh, reacts. And I, I just don't think people sometimes get that mind-body connection and how important it is. When I started realizing what this stuff was doing to me, I, I think of an incident where uh, we had a, a little girl that uh, died accidentally in a rice silo and the uh, her friends were afraid, so they reported her as being abducted. But uh, when we did find her in the rice silo, they sent a bunch of new agents out, you know, as they do to help. And I got all the new agents together, and I told them, "Look, has anybody here never seen a dead body before, or a dead body that died a violent death?" And um, nobody said anything. But individually, people started coming up to me, and I made sure that I talked to each one of them about what to expect and how it would be and I can't begin to tell you how many people would come to me to talk about how they were feeling because 
they knew that I would not only accept it, but try and help them. Whereas, you know, there's so many people in the job that you want to be these ego, nothing bothers them type guys. And those, unfortunately, are the type of people who, when they have that gun to their head, they pull the trigger. Yes, exactly. They reach the point where they do pull the trigger, right, because they can't live with the struggle. And luckily for me, you know, I I feel that Lori brought me back from the brink. I feel that my friends at work kind of enabled her to do that, and they supported her in, in bringing me back. And I think that the openness that you hear and my willingness to share so much, that reflects my desire to try and help other people. I get it. I absolutely get it. First of all, I just want to thank you for your honesty. And there's so much more in your book. And so I just want to make sure that I say the name again. In the name of the children, an FBI agent's relentless pursuit of the nation's worst predators. And for those who would like to hear more about your story, then they need to get the book. Jeff and Lori, I really appreciate your honesty, your openness, your transparency. You're willing to tell your story so that others who are in similar pain don't feel that they're alone. One of the things that I do on this show is I make sure to give my guest the last word. So what would you like to say? I think the best thing that I can offer is to say that I'm happy to be alive, grateful that my life did not end when I thought it should, and that the richness and fulfillment of my life with the realization of what I was experiencing and how it affected me has helped me be a better father and better husband. And while I realize the pain and anguish I caused my family, I think they appreciate that they were more important to me. I came to the commitment to deal with these issues with my family instead of simply choosing to end my life and leave theirs. And that's the end of the interview. I continue to be blown away at Jeff Reinick's honesty, transparency, and his bravery. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Jeff Reinick. You'll find the original one at Flyer, seeking information about Carol, Julie, and Sylvania. You'll find a photo of Carrie Stainer taken just before he confessed to their murders. There are several newspaper articles about the case and a direct link to Jeff's book, In the Name of the Children, An FBI Agent's Relentless Pursuit of the Nation's Worst Predators. I hope you'll share this episode with your friends, family, and associates. And please subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. I don't have a crime fiction recommendation for you this week. I'll have one for you next week. But in the meantime, if you're looking for a good book to read, I hope you'll pick up a copy of my FBI crime novels, Pay to Play, about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry and Greedy Givers, where she investigates a con man running a charity Ponzi scheme. <laughs>
Both novels are available at Amazon.com. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.